Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is Thursday, July 25th of 2013, and our guest is Lori Baker, who is in charge of the Supporting House, Supportive Housing Association. I think I got the name wrong. She's going to tell us all about this in just a minute when we bring her on. First, let me do a little ad for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Lori, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Lori? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, thanks for coming out. Now, tell me, what's the correct name of the association and your position there? Uh, I'm the executive director of the Supportive Housing Providers Association, and we're uh, a statewide association in Illinois of people who provide permanent supportive housing and services to people that have experienced homelessness uh, and or have a disability. Now, do you use a housing first model? Um, many of our uh, members um, do um, use a Housing First model. Obviously, Housing First is a best practice. Um, uh, any of us who are trying to work on any aspect of our life that we want to change would find that very hard to do if we didn't know where we were going to lay our head every night. So it's much more productive and quicker um, to, instead of make people move through a series of types of housing, like emergency housing, transitional housing, interim housing, uh, shared housing, um, it's much quicker to um, move people straight into permanent housing and just have the supports wrap around them um, and flex in and out based on what their needs are. Let's talk a little bit more about the Housing First model for our listeners who may not be at all familiar with this. I mean, a more traditional approach was, well, for people with substance use problems, there was a requirement that they abstain from all substances before they were housed. And that's quite different from Housing First, isn't it? That is. That is quite different. Um, and and housing... Hello, are you there? Hello, I seem to, are you there? I seem to have lost you. I'm sorry, hang on. Okay. Are you still there? Yes. I so apologize. Um, I had my alarm on to remind me of this show. <laughs> Can you edit things out, or do we have to start again? We don't have to start again. We're just—it's live radio. We're just going to go with the flow. Uh, Worst things—worst things have happened. One time, uh, my cell phone died uh, before we finished the interview. Oh no! no. (laughs) And that was on my end. So just go ahead and tell us about the Housing First and how about, it works. About Housing First. So Housing First um, is um, kind of a novel approach that, that um, which makes a lot of sense, but um, people didn't think about it. You used to have to kind of earn your way or be what people would call housing ready to access permanent housing. So in the case of a person that was um, uh, using um, uh, a substance, you would um, end up, 
um, having to be clean and sober for six months before you were, so you might have, you might go to treatment, you might um, then come out of treatment and go into a recovery home for up to six months, then they would deem you housing ready because you're clean and sober and you have everything um, uh, under control and now you're right and fit and able to live in housing. And um, that is just not um, really a productive way um, for people to have to move through um, uh, different um, types of housing to meet some false criteria that the rest of us don't meet um, when we go to sign a lease. We're not asked whether we've been clean and sober for six months. At least I haven't been um, asked that when I go and sign my lease. So um, it becomes a, um, um, a false um, way to, uh, and it sets up a, a relationship between you um, as a service provider and the person that you're um, seeking to assist along their path of, of deceit, right? Because um, if I am experiencing homelessness and I'm not clean and sober, but you want me to be clean and sober in order to get inside, then I'm going to tell you that I am, right? So that mm-hmm. sets up a really negative um, a relationship um, that of, of, of deceit, which means I can't be honest with the very person that is supposed to assist me uh, in my um, uh, in my journey uh, towards what I want to do. Um, so uh, housing first is about you don't have to be quote unquote housing ready. There are no real requirements. If I am homeless and um, I and want to be housed, then I am housing ready. I'm going to get moved into um, an available affordable housing unit and then um, the service provider is going to work with me to um, set up my individual service plan and all of the services that I need in order to access and um, maintain, you know, keep my housing maintained. So I don't have to be clean and sober. I don't have to uh, have a job. I don't have to um, have completed some set of arbitrary um, uh, classes or education in order to deserve quote-unquote housing. All human beings deserve a place to live inside. Now, that brings up a couple questions. The first thing I'm going to go with is uh, when you house people without requiring them to be clean and sober, what happens with their drug or alcohol use? Does it remain the same? Do they use more or do they tend to use less? You know what? Um, sometimes it can um, uh, kind of cycle. So sometimes when um, someone's been on the um, street and um, there hasn't been a safe place for them to um, use, then sometimes when they're inside, um, they uh, might ramp up use a little bit. Um, but um, then we often see as they begin to notice that they can, um, one, have a, have a schedule, have a safe place to be, be um, supported no matter what their choices are by uh, the service provider, by their case manager. Um, they begin to see that perhaps maybe now is the time in my life that I want to do something a little differently or I want to try to do something differently. So um, then uh, folks, if they're willing, um, are able to, um, uh, you know, access what level of service they want. So maybe, um, you know, through harm reduction, um, we talk about, um, they begin to talk to their case managers about um, ways that um, they want to um, reduce their use or do it more safely or um, change to a a, um, substance that is less harmful um, uh, and less um, detrimental to um, them as a person. Or I need to make sure that I'm thinking about 
Um, I still need to comply with the lease, just like any person who signs the lease. So I need to make sure that I'm planning uh, maybe not to use illegally in my apartment if I'm using uh, something that is not the alcohol, um, which is legal if I'm over 21. Um, you know, I need to not do that on the property. I need to make sure that my behaviors are not, um, that I don't bother uh, my other neighbors or that I um, uh, am too loud. So, um, uh, so sometimes, you know, we see um, use ratchet up a little bit at the beginning um, when people, um, you know, have someplace nice and safe to be. But um, it usually um, through intervention um, can at least go back to normal or, you know, change in whatever way the person chooses. I know in the Seattle wet house where they've done a lot of long-term research and they've tracked the use uh, very carefully, they found actually a considerable decreases over time in use. Right. I think that that is um, uh, quite true um, of, uh, of um, most supportive housing is that once people, you know, kind of um, get settled, they're set, they don't have to worry every day about where I'm going to be at, what I'm going to be, do some of that stress of that situation comes up their back, they're then able to begin to really think about what it is that I want to do and change in my life and, and make some of those changes. And, and we see quite often um, folks um, very much, um, uh, uh, you know, reduce um, uh, use or or make their use much more healthy for them than uh, it had been in the past. I mean, sometimes when you're sleeping on the street, you know, I was homeless myself, but not on the street, but uh, I was with a lot of other homeless people in our shelter. And, you know, when you're, in, you're on the street, sometimes you have to get drunk to sleep at night. Sometimes you have to Absolutely. take, sometimes you have to take uppers to stay awake. You just, Absolutely. it's like, it's really, it's a, it's a terribly stressful situation, which is just, it's like, it's designed to escalate drug use to live on the street. You're right. And I often tell, I often tell people that, you know, um, uh, who don't understand um, the dynamics um, or haven't thought about it, you know, having worked in homeless services and housing for, you know, 15 years or more, I, you know, say, um, you know, how would you survive every night if you, you know, had to, um, you know, uh, try to find food out of a dumpster and that people look over you as if you're not a person and you can't keep clean and you don't know if someone is going to hit you over the head or, you know, perpetrate some violence upon you. Um, you know, all the stuff you have is, is in a bag in your hand, you know, I mean, um, I would definitely drink as much as I could so I wouldn't have to think about that and so that I could sleep and just kind of be numb, you know, well, yeah, it's uh, it's this myth that the United States is this meritocracy where everyone is rewarded for being good and productive and they're punished for being bad and non-productive. And we get kind of this mythology that uh, substance use causes people to lose their homes, uh, which um, sometimes it does, but not always. Um, sometimes right. people lose their homes through no fault of their own and they're out there on the street. And they weren't really heavy substance users before, and it turns them into heavy substance users. I mean, it can work both ways. Substance That's use can lead, correct. yeah, substance use can lead to homelessness. Homelessness can lead to substance use. It can work either direction. Right. Absolutely. That is certainly true. And I think it's just really important to dispel this myth that these are, you know, these are bad people that fucked up their lives and deserve to be on the street, which is the <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's a and that's a that's a horrible. And you know, I, people always um, are concerned when you begin to fight housing, you know, in different neighborhoods, and and they have 
um, they people have concerns. You know, there's an acronym called NIMBY, not in my backyard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and people begin to say, well, what about, you know, what if they are drug users or alcoholics? You know, and it's like, you know what? Um, I have neighbors all around me that use substances and um, uh, drink um, all the time, and um, I don't know anything about it, right? Um, so why would you think this would be any different for uh, any other person that is going to be living around you? You know, I mean, in our society, um, uh, we have um, uh, people everywhere that use all kinds of substances, legal and illegal, right, in ways that they are meant to be used and not meant to be used. So um, there's really um, no difference between uh, any person that uh, is experiencing homelessness and, uh, you know, your average homeowner, you know, just uh, one has a house and one doesn't. Well, tell me, your uh, your organization doesn't just house drug users; it houses many types of homeless people. Tell me some more about the other other people that you work with. Okay, so um, uh, just to clarify, my organization is uh, basically a trade association of mm-hmm. people who do the work. So I don't do direct service in my organization, but my members, um, of which we have about 120 around the state of Illinois, uh, 70 are in Cook and McCulloch counties, mostly. Uh, not-for-profits that um, uh, work with, we have kind of two sides of supportive housing. Um, There is the homeless world um, that works with people experiencing homelessness, and then we have the mental health world uh, that works with folks with disabilities, and then we kind of have some niche housing-like housing for persons affected by HIV or AIDS. Um, Veterans um, can be served in quite successfully in supportive housing. Um, there have been some a lot of work recently uh, in the past few years with families, um, particularly families that have been involved with DCFS or have um, uh, a, a person with a disability in the family um, are um, being served quite well in supportive housing because supportive housing is just a regular apartment anywhere uh with a lease and rights of tenancy for the person that's affordable. So it's um, most of the time 30% of a person's adjusted gross income goes to pay for that rent portion of theirs. And then there's some rental subsidy that makes up the difference so that you can operate the building. And then the supportive services that wrap around that person. So they can be anything, um, you know, um, to children's services for families that have um, children. Um, It can be education services, employment employment, uh, uh, mental health, substance abuse services, uh, physical health. We find a lot of times that um, people who are experiencing poverty and homelessness end up um, uh, not being able to access any kind of health care, right? But hopefully that's going to change pretty quickly here in the United States. But uh, right now, unless you have some kind of insurance, there's not much way that you can even get any kind of health um, care taken care of. And we know that it's very difficult um, on your body to be homeless, uh, to have that lack of um, sleep and stability, the stress and all of that, so um, those services um, uh, can be engaged in by the person involved in supportive housing. So really, um, it's a kind of a niche housing that um, I don't think a lot of people still really even know about, but it's highly successful. Evidence-based practice underneath the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration on the federal level, or SAMHSA. Um, so it's very well documented, well proven to be cost efficient and effective and um, the most, um, I think, um, honoring um, kind of housing because um, I'm not going to 
come in and I don't come and tell you what to do. You're an adult. Um, we work together um, to work towards whatever it is you want to do. So um, if you want to go back to school, let's work towards that. You know, if you want to reduce your substance use, let's work towards that. If you, um, you know, have high blood pressure and you want to get off of medicine, let's work towards that. Um, so, um, you know, that's why I think supportive housing has been so successful with um, lots of different um, t- types of people um, is because of its flexibility and it's looking at a person as an individual and what that individual and, or family needs. So if I'm a cranky guy and I say, I just want a roof over my head and I don't want to be bothered with these services, so you just let me be? Pretty much. Pretty much. We're going to always keep, it's called voluntary service. It's um, just like, um, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but me, I personally am um, the kind of person that if you tell me uh, I'm on a diet and you tell me not to eat that chocolate sundae, it's going to make me want to eat too. Because mm-hmm, I'm going to mm-hmm, be mm-hmm. rebellious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I am I am that way, and so uh, we have found that um, through um, lots of years of, of of us as people telling other people what we think they should be doing with their lives has not been super successful. Because uh, again, I think um, you know people sometimes that you're assisting um, perhaps get off the street, they feel like beholden and they feel like they want to do something to help you, but it may not be something that they particularly have a desire to do. So if I tell you you're going to get a GED and you have no desire to get a GED, um, no matter how much you're trying to please me and I'm trying to make you, it's probably not going to work very well. So what is it, what what voluntary service means is it means it's voluntary for the tenants or the consumer, but it's not voluntary for the service provider. So I have to work as hard as I can to figure out what it is that's going to um, interest you and engage you and, um, you know, make you um, interested in being involved in the things that we have to offer that will hopefully um, add some value to your life and help move you along a path where you want to go. So it's really all about how well you um, engage and connect and that relationship between the case manager, service provider, and the person um, is key. It's key, key, key. <laughs> I think it absolutely is. Uh, the, you know, there's nothing There's nothing I like less than somebody that wants to do something for my own good. <laughs> I'm the <laughs> I decide yeah. what's for my own good, not you. That's right. Well, what we always say in tra- what I always say in trainings, and we always like to say is that um, I am not an expert on anyone else's life. They are, you are an expert on your own life. So, what better person to make the decisions and to uh, work on things um, and figure out what they want than that than you as the person whose life it is, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, you know, I think we kind of get full of ourselves sometimes in helping profession and think we know what's best, um, or if you know someone would only listen to me. But you know what? I look back on my life, and I know you have had you know similar experiences. Um, I have always been uh, allowed in my life to make my own decisions and to deal with my own consequences, you know, and sometimes it's nice to have a person that helps me think through and deal with my consequences because just because, you know, just because it's harm reduction doesn't mean that there aren't consequences if I make a choice that um, isn't necessarily positive, right? Mm -hmm. There, There are consequences. If I get in a car and I'm inebriated and I get pulled over for a DUI, I can't make that go away. But as the case manager, I can work along with you and help you deal with the consequences of that action. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
so I think some people, you know, they people get hung up by the idea of harm reduction because they are like, it's just a free for all. You can do anything you want. It's a big crack house. It's a big, you know, cavern, whatever. You know, it's like, no, that's not what harm reduction is about. Harm reduction is about is about helping people be as safe as they can be and taking the steps that they want to take um, as they move along and helping people deal with the natural consequences of their actions because we don't make those consequences go away as a as a service provider, as a helper, as a case manager, we just assist the person in dealing with those consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's also about weighing your risks and realizing some things are much riskier than others. I mean, drinking and driving is very high risk. You know, right. using heroin is a lot riskier than smoking marijuana. Right. So, you know, if you talk to people and say, you know, what's the trade-off on the risks? Do you want to go for a lower-risk behavior? And most people choose lower-risk behaviors. It's just survival, you know. Right, right, right. You're absolutely correct. I mean, it's just, uh, I think uh, we talked about this before we went on the air, but um, I like to think of harm reduction as the best way to live your life, period, in all aspects of your life. So, you know, um, I'm diabetic, so it's harm reduction for me to take my medication every day. It's not harm reduction for me to um, eat, you know, um, 12 sugar donuts every day. Um, you know, so we all make choices to reduce the harm in our, in, in our lives. You, you mentioned, you know, put, getting in the car and putting on your seatbelt, harm reduction. Mm-hmm. You know, paying my electric bill um, on time um, so that I can have uh, lights, harm reduction, so that I don't have to stumble around in the dark and not have access to electricity in my home, right? So um, I think um, that if you if we broaden our mind and think about harm reduction as more um, of a way to live life than just as a way to um, work with people that um, uh, have substance use issues, then um, maybe we'd be a little more relaxed about it and understand it a little bit more, understand mm-hmm. that it's not just a free-for-all, you know, do whatever you want to do. Um, it's well, you know, in life, in real life, nobody can stop you from doing whatever you want to do unless you're actually incarcerated, and even then, right. there's limits to how much they can restrain you. You know, right. they got to throw you in solitary where all you can do is beat right. your head on the wall. Um, right. So it, life says doesn't you know, life is a free for all, right. but harm reduction is a way to reduce the risks. You know. Right, absolutely, and a great, a great way to reduce risk, and a and a well proven documented way to re- remove uh, the risk as much as possible for folks. Because if you were going to abstain from every high risk behavior, well, you could never leave the house. First of all, no, you could no, never. You couldn't. you couldn't cross the street because it's, you're always taking your life in your hands when you cross the street. You'd have right. to li- live in a padded cell and eat gruel, as I've always said. Right. You'd be wrapped in cotton somewhere, placed on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Well, about how many people, uh, you know, you said you have many member organizations. Do you know yes, about how many do. people are served total through all these organizations? Uh, how many people are housed within our yes. organization? Yes. Yeah, in Illinois, we have... Um, about, uh, we have over 12,000 people, um, men, women, and children that live in supportive housing around the state. It's probably um, probably even uh, larger than uh, that. That those are the ones that um, uh, the supportive housing projects that receive service dollars through, from the state through a couple of state line items that we have and advocate for every year. Um, but um, we have more than 12,000 people that reside in permanent supportive housing all around the state of Illinois. Yeah. 
<clears throat> How long has your organization been around? You know, we um, started in the uh, late 90s with a group of uh, supportive housing providers in Chicago. Uh, there were like 12 original members, and they were looking to grow um, the resources that the state put into supportive housing. And they went down to Springfield after a couple of years and had conversations with a lot of legislators who said, you know, in order to really be successful, you need to be uh, statewide and you need to represent, you know, people across the state and speak with one voice when you come here to the Capitol. And so in the year 2000, we, uh, as an organization, went statewide. Um, and uh, so we went from 12 members to, like uh, I said, now we have 120 members, members all across the uh, great state of Illinois from Rockford, the Cairo, and Metropolis, all the way down in the very southern tips of Illinois, Danville to Quincy, and everywhere in between. Oh, yes. Oh, I remember. I for, for a while, I lived in Beloit, so I've been in Illinois. I used to walk across the state line all the time from, okay. from North Beloit to South Beloit. So, yeah. yes, you reminded me of that when you mentioned Rockville. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, have you, do you notice vis- visible differences in problems with homelessness now? Visible changes? Now, now as opposed to like when I first started working with persons yeah. experiencing homelessness. Have you seen a lot of visible changes uh, in the in state of Illinois through your work? You know, you know, we have seen um, we have seen a shift um, in the. Uh, kind of the population. So there's been kind of two different kinds of shifts that I that I uh, can see and speak about. One is that um, when we first began to recognize homelessness um, as an issue, um, kind, of, uh, oh, kind of in the Reagan era, a little bit later than that, um, uh, projects sprung up, the Department of Housing and Urban Development began, um, you know, putting funding into homeless services and um, began serving, uh, giving money to communities to try to address the need in whatever way they felt um, was the best way to address it. And I think um, we kind of quickly um, worked through the folks um, that just had a brief bout with homelessness, that had perhaps lost a job um, or gotten divorced or had a medical emergency that didn't allow them to work for a while, and that were um, quote-unquote, a little bit easier to house, right? They didn't need a ton of support, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, and then we began to realize that there was a whole kind of uh, subpopulation of folks that had been experiencing homelessness for a very long time um, and that were usually single adults that had some kind of disability that um, had been on the streets for a very, very long time and um, were probably very, very ill. And so we began to... Work on ending chronic homelessness. It was actually a federal initiative, and um, we've um, done a very good job across the state of Illinois of, of working on ending chronic homelessness. Well, then um, we come up to the financial meltdown in our recent past here in uh, 2008 or so when the bottom fell out, and we began to see again a lot more. Um, families, middle-class families that perhaps had never even um, contemplated um, having um, the thought of experiencing homelessness ended up um, losing jobs, uh, getting behind in um, all their bills, um, perhaps being foreclosed upon, um, and uh, ended up homeless. And um, so that's a whole different kind of 
set of folks that don't usually, they don't really need uh, permanent supportive housing because they don't necessarily need the support, but they do need some kind, um, some kinds of short-term assistance to help them through those immediate crises. So we still kind of have um, persons experiencing uh, chronic homelessness on our streets today um, because um, we have cut um, a lot of mental health programs, substance abuse programs. Um, you know, uh, the, I don't know if you've heard, but the state of Illinois is broke and probably broker than most other states. And so we've done a lot of, of cutting of um, vital safety net programs, and that means that um, where we had been making some headway um, in ending chronic homelessness or at least reducing the number of people that were experiencing it, um, that's kind of uh, stagnated and um, perhaps even began to creep back up a little bit. And then we also have this other set of people experiencing homelessness that have never probably accessed any any kind of social service program um, who aren't even aware of what um, supports could possibly be there for them as they, um, uh, for the first time, experience homelessness. We also are um, seeing a lot um, uh, of veterans return from Iraq and Afghanistan that are a different kind of veteran. Um, uh, there are a lot more women now, right, because we've never had women soldiers before. Um, there are a lot more women with children, um, single moms, uh, single dads even, and uh, intact families who um, perhaps um, the uh, soldier comes back with a debilitating um, uh, uh, wound or injury that um, makes it very difficult for them to access um, the types of employment that would be able to keep the family housed. So we're seeing um, a lot of um, different types of vets. We used to see um, the traditional folks that you would think about, like a Vietnam War veteran who had experienced um, a lot of distrust of government, um, had a, um, probably some um, substance use and probably some mental health um, issues that they were dealing with. Um, but now we're seeing, um, uh, still have some of those folks, but we're, we're seeing some families, some single parent families, some mother-led uh, households, which um, the VA is really not uh, prepared to deal with. That's not their typical soldier. So um, the federal government has been working on putting some resources um, into ending veterans homelessness also. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the funding for this? Is it state dollars, federal dollars? Is there private money? How does that work? It's a little bit of everything. Um, so we call it, we tend to call it lasagna financing because it has so many layers <laughs> of funding. So um, in a typical supportive housing project, you have um, three um, legs of funding. We call it the three-legged stool of supportive housing funding. One, uh, one leg is the capital or the money to either purchase a building, build a building, rehab a building um, to make it um, habitable for um, and make it into apartments for people to access. We have the second leg is operations money, and that's money that makes the rent affordable for someone with a, a low to very low income. And it also allows that operation money that allows you to keep the lights on in the hallways and to have the laundry room and to pay for the upkeep of the building and repairs and maintenance and that. Um, and the third leg is the, the supportive services that make it supportive housing. So that first leg, the capital, um, can come from a variety of sources. The Department of Housing and Urban Development has um, put a lot of money into it. Um, we have some state. Uh, we have a, the Illinois Housing Development Authority that um, uh, has access to tax credits, 
um, that has the Illinois Affordable Housing Trust Fund that people can apply for. There are a variety of uh, uh, places like the Federal Home Loan Bank or um, some other lenders, uh, ISF, some other lenders like that that uh, um, give you like low to no interest loans in order to do um, social, um, uh, socially responsible uh, building and or uh, uh, you know property development. Um, on the operating side, a lot of that money comes um, uh, oftentimes again from the federal government. So. Um, Section 8 housing choice vouchers are a rental subsidy that is provided by uh, public housing authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, a person could use that. Um, a person has to fit the income guidelines, and then they would pay 30% of their adjusted gross income towards the rent, and the Section 8 voucher would pay the other portion of their rent up to the full market rent. Um, so those are federal resources. There are some state um, uh, rental subsidy programs, and even local jurisdictions can create some rental subsidy programs. Um, sometimes uh, in the city of Chicago, for example, there's the low-income housing uh, trust fund that is able to provide rental subsidies just in Chicago. Um, for the, uh, the supportive service dollars, there's a variety of sources. We are able to use some Medicaid dollars for some um, uh, medically necessary services. Um, we also, um, in the state of Illinois, are blessed with having um, a couple of line items that we fight really hard for every year that are within our state budget and are um, paid for out of our general revenue fund and some other special funds um, that support the service within supportive housing. But there are also some other federal and state and local sources that people are able to tap into for some of those. Too. So it's kind of a mix and every project looks different. There is no like cookie cutter. This is exactly what everything looks like. Every part of the housing looks different. Um, there are single site buildings or scatter site buildings. In southern Illinois, we have uh, houses that people um, live in, just a single family home because um, uh, there uh, aren't lots of apartment complexes in southern Illinois. So uh, it's normal and natural and fits in with the community and is just the same. Uh, supportive housing should look the same and, and not be able to, you know, drive by and point, that's that building. Nope, these, they integrate into the community or just like everything else within the community. Um, explain scatter site some more because some of our people might not know what you mean by that. Sure. So um, Scattersite um, supportive housing is um, just simply that instead of having one building, let's say we built a 15-unit building, instead of having 15 units in one building, um, we would have the rental subsidy um, so that the person could access a apartment anywhere uh, in the city that we're in or the county that we're in. Um, and then the service um, money would then, and, and personnel would then flex in and out of that person in um, the scattered site. So I might live in a, I personally might live in an apartment building that has six apartments in it. And there could be a person living next door to me that was in scattered site supportive housing because they have a rental subsidy. They were renting that unit and then they have supportive services that works with them as they work and as they live in that unit. So instead of having one building that is just dedicated um, to all the units being supportive housing, scattered site could be all around um, the community and the support um, comes to them and they access other supports that are in the community also. So everybody in the building would just be 
so it might be just one person is getting supportive housing in the building and everybody else is just paying their own rent the regular way. Uh, <laughs> whatever, whatever I'm trying to say, but. Yep. That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. And that's um that's been a concept that has um really blossomed and moved forward um in the past few years um because it's very expensive to build. Um it c- takes a lot of capital, um it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of um different sources of funding and it takes a long time to develop a building. So in order to end uh, homelessness and to get people off the streets, we need to use as many pieces as we can. So it's much cheaper, faster, easier to access a rental subsidy and assist the person into a unit that already exists. Now, you mentioned Section 8. And uh, in New York City here, uh, for all intents and purposes, Section 8 is almost unavailable. How is it in Illinois? You know, it's it's it's. It's very stress system everywhere. There's uh, there's definitely not enough Section 8 vouchers for um, every person that needs it. But a lot of uh, sometimes um, uh, supportive housing providers and developers are able to partner with their local housing authorities and get a few um, Section 8 vouchers that are set aside um, uh, just for um, their supportive housing project. I know I personally had that experience when I was doing development. We were able to have a relationship with our local housing authority, and they were able to put some special use Section 8 vouchers to decide, if you will, um, for our project, and that way um, they could be used. But um, there are long waiting lists um, everywhere for uh, a a regular citizen, quote-unquote, to go access Section 8. Um, But there are some other rental subsidies um, that are accessed um, through uh, HUD's homeless programs. There's a program called Shelter Plus Care within that that um, the the rental subsidy is the shelter part of it and the plus care is the service part of it. And so for every dollar of rental subsidy that is provided, then there has to be a dollar of care provided for the person. So people can apply for those through um, the uh, federal continuum of care um, program program. they, um, there are also some other um, state and local, and that's why it's so challenging to do this work because they're always scratching and clawing um, for little pieces of resource from here and there to put together to make into a project. Well, my other job, I mean, you know me from Ham's Harm Reduction for Alcohol, but my other, my day job is with the Lower East Side Needle Exchange Program. So a lot of our participants there are homeless, and we're very interested in supportive housing. And so, I mean, it, it's a huge issue for our participants, you know. Right, it is. Accessing housing is, um, if, I don't care what, um, different um, work group you go to, whether it's people that are talking about um, serving persons affected by human trafficking or uh, survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault, whether you're talking about um, uh, children aging out of DCFS, whether you're talking about folks reentering from jails or prisons, whether you're talking about persons with a disability or people with a substance abuse issue or anyone in between, housing is the hardest thing to access. It's the thing that we are shortest on, and it's the thing especially of affordable housing and affordable accessible housing um, is very difficult to obtain. So, um, you know, that's why our work is rewarding, but it's also why um, uh, it's frustrating because we can't develop it fast enough because there there is a large need and uh, not enough money to um, make that need um, go away. 
I know in New York City, even if you got a full time job and a good income, it's hard to get housing. Absolutely. Um, so um, there's a study that's done every year that looks at um, what kind of wage um, someone would need to make to pay the typical um, uh, the uh, fair market rent on a typical two-bedroom in every jurisdiction in the United States, and there's not one place in the United States where you can work a minimum wage job and afford the fair market rent on a typical two-bedroom apartment. Well, tell me, how do you uh, how do you sell the idea of supportive housing and harm reduction housing to the to the general public? You know, um, uh, there, there's, there's lots of um, different um, tacks to take, if you will. Um, part, part of the way that I like to talk about it is um, that I believe personally that housing is a human right and that there isn't any, anything that someone needs to do to deserve to be inside safe and secure um, and have a key and someplace to, um, to be away from the elements and to have of their own. Um, I don't believe that there's anything that you have to do in this world to uh, deserve that. I think we all as human beings should have that right. Um, uh, that is not an argument that, that um, works um, for all people. Um, but part of um, the argument and the thing that we've been able to prove with supportive housing is that it's cost efficient. Um, so it costs much more to emergency crisis systems like mm-hmm. jails, mm-hmm. prisons, ambulance, emergency rooms, state hospitals, all of those emergency systems that do not um, change a person's situation but simply create additional barriers to them um, accessing housing ever, right? Um, uh, Those expensive systems see tons of money savings when people are housed in supportive housing rather than on the street. And, you know, I don't know... um, uh, anyone who can say that they would rather spend more money to keep someone on the street than they would to um, spend less money to have somebody housed. And it's much better to have people um, be allowed to have access to um, the services that uh, they need um, and the supports that they need um, than it is to, again, have a person um, who might be on the street and not have any of the supports that they need and whose behaviors might be more disruptive than um, if they are housed and have the support that they need. Well, I think we're getting ready to uh, wind up the show. So what would you like to leave us with this evening? Well, I'd like to leave you with um, a couple of thoughts. I think that um, if you don't um, know a lot about supportive housing, I would encourage you to um, look uh, up information online. There's lots of great information on the SAMHSA website at SAMHSA.gov that talks about um, the components of of supportive housing, why it works, how it works. And the evidence piece of that is probably – a uh, hundred pages of just citation after citation of studies that prove that cost effectiveness, efficiency, and human capital savings that there are by um, uh, developing and, and supporting supportive housing. Um, and then I would also encourage you to um, uh, be strong advocates for um, the concepts of harm reduction. Um, obviously, um, there uh, are many people that don't understand what it is and um, don't truly um, uh, get why it's important and why it saves lives and why um, it keeps 
um, uh, people from uh, perishing. You know, I mean, I, I think it's just it's such a compelling um, uh, way to um, work with our fellow human beings. Um, and it works so well that we need to just beat that drum and be out there talking to everyone we can about it so that they understand it. And I thank you so, so much for um, caring enough about this to do this um, radio broadcast and to um, give me the opportunity to talk to your listeners. It's really been really great. Well, it's been great to have you here. So, everyone, we're going to be back next week. Uh, our guest will be Audrey Kishline, who is going to tell us the real facts about what happened with MM. So, everyone, thank you and good night.